back to Sysadministrivia, the podcast where we run super late sometimes. I, I already opened with that before, I think, didn't I? You probably have. Something similar to that. It's a pattern. <laughs> I was like, yeah, let's start at 11, and it's now 11.37 my time. Yeah, fortunately for me, that's only 9.37, but... Uh... For a working guy like myself, I don't get to just work from home. Like, you have to go places. A working guy? I think I put more into my work than you do. I am a puppet master. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, oh my goodness. Up tonight, we've got news about an Android vulnerability. You've probably heard about it before already. It's actually a suite of vulnerabilities. It's a, it's a bunch of them released at once, and it's pretty serious stuff. We've, we've also got news about Linux malware. It has existed before, but we haven't really covered it too in-depth, so we're going to take a look at an example of it tonight. So, uh, OpenSSH 6.9 was released recently, so we're going to take a look at that as well. And more fuckery from the NSA, as always, so we're going to take a look at that. I'm kind of, like, over the NSA thing now. Like, not really, because I'm still super activist-y about it. I'm no longer surprised by anything. Now I just automatically assume the worst. Yeah, I've never been in a place where I've cared that much. I mean, it could be the wrong attitude to take or whatever, but I just don't feel like I have anything to hide. Like, I think it's funny that someone would sit there and, like, parse my phone conversation. Well, I mean, they don't do the majority of it by humans. Um, no, well, you know I what? Know. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that when we, when we get to it. I found an article on some performance tuning for 10 gigabit networks done by Cloudflare, of all things. So we'll take a look at that. We've got a comparison of the BSDs, just really brief overview stuff. Closely tied into BSD, we'll, we'll talk about FreeNAS and OwnCloud. OwnCloud is an alternative to that that's Linux-based. So first up, the Android vulnerability. I mean, it was big news on the 26th. That's four days ago now. There's a, a whole bunch. I think that counted like seven CVEs. I, say, I think it's six or seven. Yeah, it's like seven different CVEs, uh, the majority of them targeting Android's media system, basically, called Stage Fright. And it's some serious stuff. You can end up sending either an SMS or an MMS. It's an MMS because it has to be a video. Okay, yeah. You can send a, a specially crafted message via MMS to an Android phone, and this is this is worse than the iPhone thing, where you could crash someone's phone by sending a, a specially formatted SMS. So with this, you can actually get it to run arbitrary code. Yes, and you can expose things that are kept in memory. And you don't need to open the message. It just has to exist on your device, basically. Uh, parsed, yeah. Yeah, and it seems, in, it seems that it's pretty independent of which messaging app you use. So it's yeah. not like you can switch to using, uh, you know, Hangouts or your default SMS app right now to get around it. It's just, it is. It's not even that they, like, it doesn't matter so much which one you pick. It's that it targets both of them because they use the same parsing from what I understand. So even if you use the default SMS app Messenger and also use Google Hangouts as a separate thing, as I do, both are vulnerable. <laughs> I've seen mumblings that CyanogenMod, which is what I'm using now, is not vulnerable, but I was not able to confirm that. I sent a, a tweet out towards CyanogenMod, but I never heard back, so I'm not quite sure, but the general vibe that I'm getting is that it's not vulnerable to this attack. The big thing is, if you want to make absolutely sure that you are not subject to this, you could always turn MMS off for the time being which, depending on your habits or what's important to you, that might not be an option, or it may be, but as far as I know, that is one way to negate this for now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The, I don't know, I mean, I shouldn't have to do that, you know? 
No, I totally agree. It's bullshit, but it's kind of hard when you bash on people with their iPhones because you can send them a text message and restart their phone or turn it off or whatever when this comes about for Android and it's like 10 times worse. And Android as at least as of the five branch. What is that? M? Lollipop. Lollipop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I'm reading here, the vulnerability has been resolved in the next version, Android M. It's vulnerable between 4 and 5, so... Uh, I guess if you're older than 4... Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's see, it was Kit Kat Lollipop, so if you're on Jelly Bean, you're okay. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, I guess it pays to be a, a slow adopter. For once. For once, yeah. Well, I mean, there was also another another thing recently that affected... I think it was another open SSL vuln, but CentOS and Red Hat were not affected because their version of SSL was too old. Which is pretty funny, actually. Yeah. But I mean, I think it was as of version 5.x for Android that they started enabling SE Linux. So I'm like, how lax is their SE Linux if it's allowing this kind of stuff? You know? Right. I don't understand it. I don't have a whole lot to say about it, just... Like, oh, wait, I want to back up the bus. I'm sorry. I'm reading this article. It's from the Trend Microblog. I forgot ice cream sandwich, jelly bean, and Kit Kat were all technically Android 4, so they're all vulnerable. Oh. Oh. Well. So, yeah. Disregard what we said about jelly bean. Yeah. Shoot. I mean, at least Google knows about it. Upstream vanilla AOSP. As of May 15th, they've included it. And I did grab the Cyanogen Mod Nightly, and I'm running that. So I'm pretty positive i'm okay because i think they build directly from upstream and then apply their own patch sets but you know I, I never got confirmation on that so who knows did you have anything else you want to talk about that not really i think it's just worth mentioning that we haven't really seen huge android vulnerabilities in the course of its existence yeah that's so true i'm not saying that that excuses this but it definitely it's not like an all-the-time thing it's not open ssl <laughs> Zing. Yeah, well, I mean, seriously, though, if you had to worry about your phone being attacked every other week because there was some CVE that was related to Android, that'd be one thing that would really suck. But being as this is like one of the first really big major Android vulnerabilities that I've seen since I've been using it, and that's quite a bit now, mm -hmm. I think it still has a really good track record. I'm not going to just drop Android for it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm with you. Especially because there are so many ROMs, custom ROMs that you could get. So, you know, let's just say Google took their sweet time patching this or whatever. Chances are you could get a custom ROM that would fix it if you really had to. Yeah. Well, Google already did patch it. They just haven't right. it's just bundled it into like a point release and then haven't distributed it to the carriers. Right, exactly. And that's half the thing. Yeah. Because the carriers take forever. Yeah. The OTA is just horrible with them because they, a lot of them apply their own special bullshit to that. So that's going to take forever. But at least the patch is out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So if, I mean, scroll back a little bit and check out our episode we did on custom firmwares. And this might be a good time to, to flash at the very least with the vanilla AOSP, the vanilla Android. So, I mean, yeah, give it a shot. So next, the Linux malware. There's a, there's a group called Malware Must Die, and they have their own, like, hashtag on Twitter, you know, just hashtag Malware Must Die, and they do some really awesome stuff. They do a lot of reverse engineering of malware, figuring out where it's coming from, where it's trying to contact, things like that, and they do a lot of write-ups on this stuff. And they found one called, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, IP Tablex. Um, it's, yeah, yeah it's I mean, MMD... It's 
MMD 0035-2015 is the, the malware designation number. We'll, we'll post a link to the blog as we always do. But, I mean, it, it's kind of intense. So they're apparently using Shellshock to deliver this malware. And they traced it back. And I know this, this is an ongoing joke in the InfoSec community. Because everybody, like Wired Magazine and all that, says, oh, it's China, or oh, it's Russia. This is an actual case where it actually was traced back to China, which is what makes this notable. Usually, it's not actually China, at least like in the sense that people tend to think it is. So, it is what it is. But it, it, it does seem to be coming from China. And there's some really interesting stuff in there. Like, they have code samples laid out. They talk about how it propagates, things like that. I mean, it's a great blog post. I think they even found the CNC, the command and control server. Yeah, there it is. So they've they've got a whole big write-up on it. And it really gets you into the mindset of how to detect malware for yourself. Not just for Windows, but cross-platform at the very raw, low level. Did you have anything to say about that? Because you're, like, silent. Yeah, I'm silent a little bit. I don't really have too much to say. I mean... This isn't the first time we've heard about Linux malware. Mm -hmm. Probably won't be the last. Right. The important thing is don't fall into that category of people that's like, oh, well, I'm using Linux, so I'm fine. While that's generally true, it's not always true. And I actually am in the process of writing a post right now for How To Forge about, well, it applies really to Linux in general, but it's specifically for Arch, the one I'm writing. And it's one of the points that I try to hammer home is just, The worst thing you can do is let your guard down because you think you're safe. You know, yes, Linux has a really great policy with dropping packets on ports that aren't explicitly bound by service, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't put a firewall in place anyway. Things like that. And I think this is the same thing. Don't think that you're not able to get malware just because you're using Linux. And even more so, now that Linux is gaining market share, it's going to be more frequent, I think, in the coming, you know, years. Yeah, I do believe that Linux these days is inherently more secure than Windows and Mac OS X. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Maybe, maybe FreeBSD even. Definitely not OpenBSD. OpenBSD, they're, they're hardcore. Props to them. But yeah, so I mean, just because you're, you're still really secure, the weak point is always going to be that human, at least in Linux's case. You're only as secure and clean, I guess, as you are knowledgeable about the system you're running. Sure. And that's, uh, again, hopefully by the time this episode is posted, I'll have a link that we can put in the show notes. But the How To Forge article, I'm not trying to like plug myself here. But no, dude. Plug I mean, seriously, that was something else that I said is just be aware of what software you install. Be aware of what services you have running. Be especially aware of what services are running at boot so that if a reboot happens, you know, if you explicitly stop something, but it's going to restart when you reboot your machine and something happens and your machine reboots without your knowledge, you don't want that service to be there wide open just because you forgot that it was going to start again or whatever. So just be smart. Think about it, what you're doing. Think about what you're installing. Think about why you're installing it. And also minimize what you actually have installed. Yeah. I mean, don't be afraid to play around with new packages, whatever. But if you don't need something anymore, it's just a piece of code or it's just a service that may be running on your machine that could be exploitable at some point in time. That's very true. I mean, everyone has open SSL because of the nature of the internet right now. But just for example, if LibreSSL was available and people had switched. It is. 
It is now. It wasn't during all the vulnerabilities, really. Right. But if people had Libre SSL instead, they couldn't have been vulnerable to OpenSSL because it wasn't installed. And that could apply to anything. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good example. And let's say there's a vulnerability in MySQL. If you're running MariaDB, which is, I should note, like drop-in compatible with MySQL D. If you're running MariaDB, you are very likely to not be susceptible to that because I, I believe they completely wrote it from scratch or they, they forked it at a certain point. But it's a very different code base, but it still does the same thing. So there are plenty of alternatives for a lot of the stuff you may be running too. But you brought up a good point, and it's not really relevant to your how-to forge because it's, you know, your how-to forge articles are specifically for Arch. But be aware of how your distro handles the installation of new software. Ubuntu, I might have mentioned this in the last episode or the episode before. I think it was the last one that we talked about it a little bit. Yeah, Ubuntu, you install a package, let's say SSH, and it starts that service by default and enables it on boot by default. So if it's a service you needed as a dependency or maybe you wanted to run it at a certain time, you weren't ready to run it, you wanted to secure it, lock it down first before starting it up, whatever. Be aware, that's running when you install it. As you install it. When it finishes, it starts it. And I think some others do that as well. Arch, CentOS, Red Hat do not. I don't think Debian does. I don't think Debian does either. I I feel like they wouldn't. I feel like Mint probably does. Oh, I'm absolutely sure Mint does. I should know this because I just had to turn up like 13 different distro VMs to test BDisk. I, I can't remember off the top of my head which one's doing which and don't. Like, I can't remember if SUSE does it, but there's plenty of distros that do. So be very aware of that and, you know, watch that net stat. Absolutely. And the other thing while we're talking about it is just give some thought and consideration when you hear about a vulnerability like this. And that's number one is you should be a part of some mailing list or you should check on some blogs that would have information like this likely because it's important that you know about it in the first place or you can't do anything to combat it or change your habits or whatever may have to be the case. But the other thing is, is know where your packages are coming from, because if you're using CentOS and you add a repository directly from some piece of software or whatever, you have to know to look for the update there or, you know, whatever that may mean, whatever the implications, depending on the situation are, just know where your packages are coming from and know where to look for that update. I think at least CentOS, so by default, probably Red Hat, at the very least has a daemon that you can configure to automatically install security updates only. But again, that can still backfire because, you know, you can run into some weird conditions where if you upgrade, you're not prepared to upgrade. You can run into some iffy stuff. But I'd say that's probably fewer and farther between than something like this biting someone in the ass. But you mentioned mailing lists. MITRE.org and the NIST.gov, I'll link them. MITRE and NIST are great places for this. They both have mailing lists. They maintain CVSs, the database of vulnerabilities, basically. Both of them are just fantastic resources on this. If you have a Red Hat subscription, you should be able to see those notices in your subscription page. They put out errata notices and things like that, and a lot of them are security related. And sometimes they're even a little bit more verbose than the actual CV uh, CVE, rather, not CVS. I just realized I said that. And they're, sometimes they're a little bit more verbose than the CVE. So check it out. I mean, if you're paying the money, why not? Yeah, and Red Hat can also email them to you. Yeah, Red Hat can email out. You may be able to configure like how severe of a risk 
you want emailed to you, like above a certain threshold. I don't know. I just got a Red Hat trial subscription, so I'd have to check it out. But I think you can do that. But I bring that up because usually for the big ones, I'll retweet them or I'll tweet about them if I don't see anybody else mentioning it. So you can just follow our Twitter. It's right on our contact page. I'll link to it in the notes. But I mention all the big ones. I talk about them frequently. So if mailing lists maybe aren't your thing. Yeah, and if anyone's willing to host an IRC bot for us that just parses RSS feeds for CVEs, I'd be open to that. <laughs> oh, dude, I can I can do that. Yeah, probably could. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done something pretty similar with it. So I don't know. I mean, that'd be that's a, that's a lot of noise, though, honestly, because CVEs are coming in pretty fast these days. Yeah, it's true at times. Malware on Linux. There you go. Yeah, and, and it's not the first case, but I think it's generally harder to write for. Maybe with like a desktop system, I'm sure it's easier because then you've got like policy kit D and things like that. But on servers where maybe that's not running, that's going to be a lot harder to get going. When I was back in the web hosting industry, most of what I saw was really stupid mistakes that cPanel would make related to symlink traversal and things like that. So I don't know. I'm still not too worried. I keep myself patched. It's the best you can do. Pretty much. I'm going to move on to OpenSSH because this is some actually exciting news. Yeah, this is pretty sweet, actually. I forget the release date. I want to say it was like two weeks ago. It was like right near we finished recording the last one. And I was like, ah, uh, crap. But it's a pretty recent release. OpenSSH 6.9 was released. It's June 30th. Thank you. Yeah, June. Th- oh, a month ago. Yeah. So it it was a fair bit ago. But in the release notes for 6.9, they have a future deprecation notice. OpenSSH 7.0, which should be coming out any day now if it isn't already, because it's it's scheduled for release in late July. Here, it literally just turned July 31st. So if it's not out already, it should be out very soon. It's going to deprecate several quote-unquote features. I call these bugs, but whatever. Yeah, some of these things... Well, all right, so these are in, again, my article on how to forge is like locking down SSH as part of it. and. Like, half of the things I talk about is going to be null in a day or two. Well, no. No, because, well, for Arch, yeah. but Yeah, it's, well, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is, I'm focusing on Arch, but realistically, if you're using Debian, Ubuntu, CentOS, CentOS, it could be years. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think it's good that you're still writing it out because they may be running an older version of Arch. I hope, I hope they aren't. Because if you start missing updates on Arch, it's just a pain in the butt to get it back up to speed. No Gen 2, but it's not fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not as bad as Gen 2, but it's definitely not fun. Doable, but painful. So along these changes, along with a presumed fix for the whole... There's basically a brute force that gets around the keyboard interactive quote-unquote bug. It's kind of a bug. It's not really a bug. Whatever. But there's, there's a patch to strengthen that, which Arch already has implemented. It's it's like a two-line patch, two-line change. Basically, just rate limits keyboard interactive. So we'll probably implement some form of protecting against that upstream. But the ones that we do know are planned for 7.0 are an SSHD config. Permit root login will change from yes to no. By default. By default. I would maybe prefer that instead it changed from yes to without password. But, I mean, what can you do? I... No is still better than yes, let's be honest. They are disabling at compile time, by default, 
support for legacy SSH version 1.x, which is really cool. I mean, I really hope nobody's using that because it's, it's super vulnerable. Old as shit. You know how in the Matrix when Trinity uses SSH nuke? Yeah. Yeah. So SSH nuke is a real program and she uses Nmap too. Nmap's obviously also a real program. Um, and SSH nuke targets 1.x open SSH. So I'm glad they're dropping it basically. It's been long enough. Let's, let's, you know, you had a good run. Bye. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> they are runtime disabling support for 1024 bit Diffie Hellman group SHA 1. SHA 1 is, is kind of like a known broken at this point. It's not as strong as we thought it was. 1024-bit Diffie-Hellman is also on its way out. It's not the best. What was the weak DH thing? Did that have an official name? Do you remember? Oh. um, Yeah, we talked about that in one of our episodes, too. Yeah. I want to say it's maybe around episode 8 or 7 of this season. So... I, I can't quite remember if it had, like, some fancy name or not, but the website was weakdh.org. They gave you really helpful tips on how to strengthen your DH. But there was a flaw in that where basically anything 1024 and under could be considered weak. And, and it's at varying levels, of course, but they're dropping support for 1024-bit DH group SHA-1, which is great. Dropping default support, I should say. They are runtime disabling, so you can still enable them in, like, configs and options and stuff but runtime disabling ssh dss ssh dss cert host and user keys which is great i mean dss has been just a shit show you you are you still using dss keys jathan i have one left and i was actually just looking at it today and thinking about switching it over soon yeah you should use that secure secure shell article that we're mirroring oh yeah i forgot about that yeah dude set that up i'm not really too worried about it it's not a problem for me to do it it's just that i haven't sat down to do it i can understand it's being a pain but now you've got an even better encouragement to do that since they're dropping ssh dss yeah exactly so i'm not really gonna have a choice sooner or later well probably sooner well you you'll still have a choice they're runtime disabling it which means like it's going to be in like a config or can be re-enabled with an option yeah but i mean it's better off just to why are you encouraging my laziness, you dick? <laughs> I'm I'm correcting you. I'm not don't get don't confuse the two. But yeah, I would advocate you doing that sooner than later. They are dropping support for the legacy V00 cert. Yeah, I don't even know what that is, so that's like before my time or something. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever used it, honestly. I mean it's it's definitely probably not seeing a whole lot of use outside some legacy systems or pure Unix systems. They are disabling by default several ciphers. Blowfish CBC, which is, it's all right. Blowfish CBC is all right. It's not the best, but I don't think there are any known attacks against it. Twofish is definitely awesome. Like, Twofish is, like, the the next iteration. I don't think there's any attacks known against Blowfish. I'll have to check. They're also disabling Cast128 CBC, all ARC4 variants, and oh, I can never pronounce this. Yeah, I don't know how the hell you say this. Someone please correct me. The Rindel, I think that's how it said. CBC aliases for AES. So all those are disabled by default. You can still enable them if you really want them, but they're disabled by default. And they will also, and this is cool, refusing all RSA keys smaller than 1024 bits. The current is 768. I think when you run SSH keygen, I think the default is 1024. True story. You should be okay. I always run mine with bit length of 4096 because I can, 
and because it's got a lot of future proofing behind it. But if you don't set the bit length yourself, you should be okay with your old keys, as long as you're not using DSA. So, you know, that's what they're intending to put into the 7.0 release. They say that could change, but... I think those are all pretty viable for a 7.0 point release. So, right. And you know if they don't make it in right away in 7.0, it's going to come soon after as a minor release. Yeah, I think it'll be in the 7X branch for sure. All of those at, at some point. So that's very cool. I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, there's a lot of changes there that should have been made a long time ago, but weren't. Absolutely. And Secure Shell is another one of those things that people just kind of take for granted as being very secure. And it typically is, but it can leave something to be desired. Yeah, the way it ships by default can definitely use some improvement, and even the way it's packaged by most distros, which is, and I'll link to it again, there's the secure secure shell write-up on GitHub. We are mirroring it in our wiki, so, I mean, if GitHub goes down or the author deletes it or something, we do have a copy, because it's some really solid stuff, and you should follow the author on Twitter, because they, they have some pretty cool insight on security. Let's see, what's next? NSA. NSA, yeah. X key score. So, oh my gosh. Who says that it's not X keys core? It's not. (laughs) It's whole... No, the whole thing is... this is what they want you to think. Now they're on to you. Really? Yeah. Well, I think that's bullshit. Anyways, X key score. (laughs) It's basically a way of the NSA tracking in MySQL databases. This is one of the few cases where we actually have some detailed information on NSA implementation and infrastructure. So it's run on Red Hat servers, MySQL databases, NFS distributed file system, and the AutoFS service. And XKeyscore systems use SSH and rsync and vim. And it kind of seems like the almost the whole thing is running on open source stacks. Sort of. I mean, the the majority of it is. I know NSA just open sourced a bunch of stuff, and I can't remember if XKeyscore is is one of that or not. And it's worth mentioning, this is all the information about XKeyscore is available because of Snowden leaks. Yeah. Which is awesome. Well, and and that's the thing. I'm still reserving my judgment as to whether or not that was a planned kind of black flag event. Uh, You're something else. No, 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 no. You laugh. Like, I'm not the only one that thinks this. No, you're like one of six people I know. No. (laughs) No, we're... The number's up there. But keep in mind, I was also one of the people that said the NSA's been spying on you for years, and nobody believed until NSA leaked those documents. So I don't know. I I think there's something to be said about tinfoil hats, as long as you remember to take it off at the end of the day. You know, you're not constantly wearing it, but... I try to maintain a level of reason with how how realistic something is. And it's perfectly possible that the Snowden leaks were planned. I'm not saying it's likely or that it's what happened. So I'm what saying would it's be the point possible. Uh, a lot of it's to kind of divert attention from other operations, typically. I mean, if I was the NSA director, that's what I'd be using it for. I'd be using it to distract attention away in the media and in the citizens to, to focus on something else. But it's still, X-Keyscore is still pretty interesting. It's kind of a weak system. The security behind it's kind of weak, which makes me worried. But what they do is they can kind of apply tagging filters to the traffic they get through Prism and that system. And they can categorize your network traffic in an automated way. And this is why, like, the metadata is maybe not as important, but at the very least, it's pretty much very important why metadata is important in terms of surveillance, because they can gather a whole profile on you based on just the metadata alone of the websites you visit and and stuff like that. 
So we'll post a link so you can see more details on that. It's got an interesting layout for sure. It does a lot of parsing of like headers for web traffic and email traffic and all sorts of other stuff. So it seems they seems super intelligible in one sense, but also very judgmental in another. Well, sort of. The good news is Internet Explorer is not supported. <laughs> well, you know, I guess that's good news. The thing is, it's not really intelligent. I'm assuming that's what you meant, not intelligible. Um, no, I mean, it kind of is intelligible, but also not. In what sense? It's intelligible in the sense that it's a good move on their part to help them filter things. The software itself is arguably not that intelligible. You mean intelligent. That's that's the word you're looking for in both those contexts. Sure. <laughs> Are you Googling what intelligible means? Yep. Okay. Able to be understood or comprehensible. Yep. Yeah, that works. <laughs> the example is this would make the system more intelligible to the general public. <laughs> How ironic. I know. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to the way you were using it, but I'm like 95% certain that's not how you meant to use it. But I understand why they did it, but <sighs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm so over NSA. I'm not. I'm angry. I'm angry as shit, but I'm just so exhausted. It's like an uphill battle. You get them to disclose something and get them to shut down a certain part of the program and five more pop up. It's it's atrocious. It just seems like such a big fucking waste of money. You know what? Objectively, I can say it is. And I can say objectively because how many successful operations has it led? All this information gathering on citizens. We've talked about this. I think like zero. Yeah, I don't know, speaking this generally, I'm sure it gave them some good leads to valid cases, but definitely not enough to justify the cost of this thing. I mean, let's look at it in a slightly more humane manner. Let's say you're a police force for a, a small town, and you want to implement this program that costs, I mean, I guess scaled to this point, I don't know, $2 million? And it will guarantee catching, I don't know, two criminals every three years? I mean, that's the kind of scale we're talking about here. It's ridiculous for the amount of money they're shelling into it and the intrusion upon the privacy and other rights of citizens. And the payoff just really isn't worth it. It reminds me of those, oh, what were they called? Stingrays? You ever hear about them? Yeah, that was a big thing that just happened not that long ago, like in the UK, right? Well, it's been going on for like years, right. yeah. But it was recently discovered there, like, that they were using those devices. Right. So stingrays are a funny little piece of quote-unquote technology. It's basically a car antenna screwed into a plastic hand grip, and that's it. There's no actual electronics inside. There's nothing. The quote-unquote inventor claims that they can detect drugs or explosives or people. <laughs> Oh, I smell Brent in there. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a glorified dousing rod. And they were proven to be no more effective than a placebo at all. I mean, they, they pretty much are a placebo. But it was a big deal. But law enforcement agencies worldwide were spending truckloads of money on these things. And I, they didn't do anything. Like, at what point was someone like, you know what, we should x-ray this to make sure... To get at least an idea of what's going on inside. Or we should take it apart. Like, warranty be darned and audit the technology we're using. I mean, everybody should be doing that. At what point were they like, hey, it's empty? I don't know. It's, it's some bullshit, yeah. frankly. Yep, I think so too. Anyway, so the whole NSA spying programs are basically a high-tech version 
or actually a, a tech period, <laughs> a technology driven because the Stingray doesn't have any tech to it. It's basically a tech driven Stingray. It's just really not useful at all. Whatever. I'm going to move on. Yeah. Because this is something much more interesting and much more happy. I don't think it is. What? What are you talking about? What? The next thing. Dude, no. This is awesome. Are you going to do it? Yeah. So Cloudflare. Yeah, why the hell not? So Cloudflare wrote up an article on how to achieve 10 gigabit per second Ethernet. Now, we know the basics because I talked about them a little bit ago. You know, you got to have Cat6 or Cat6A, preferably Cat6A. You're going to stand a better chance. You got to have straight Cat6 gear throughout the entire network. You got to keep your distances short. And if you really need to go for a long haul, use a repeater, stuff like that. Tune your kernel. And this is where we start getting into the stuff that Cloudflare talks about. So they talk about making some modifications to the Linux networking stack where they're basically tracking UDP packets to get these benchmarks. And they give you some tips on how to modify your interfaces via ETH tool, ETH tool, F tool. Different people pronounce it different ways. I tend to say F tool. And a couple other different devices, change some, some kernel parameters. And the speed, like the differences in speed are awesome. You can see a very clear difference. To the normal person looking at it, I mean, it may be hard to parse and it may seem negligible, but like when you're trying to get 10 gigabits a second, it's a big deal. It's a super big deal. I don't know. It's just, it's really awesome that they published how they did it. Absolutely. If this is something you're interested in achieving, it's worth checking out. Even if you don't get the results they got, if you get an improvement, it's totally worth it. Yeah, I mean, the 40 mu seconds round trip time, it looks like. The software tweaks with busy polling, CPU and affinity trimmed down to 30 mu seconds. I think I'm saying that right. Mu seconds? I don't know what abbreviation US is. I'm assuming it's mu seconds. They trimmed that down from 40 to 25 eventually, and it's, it's really impressive. So we'll link to that. You can take a look. I don't know. That's, that's all I have to say on that. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. It kind of just is what it is. All right. Well, let's let's talk about BSD then. One of my favorite topics. Joy of joys. <laughs> yeah. So we're just going to do a brief rundown of the five major BSDs, if you will. And I mean, really, if you're asking me, it's more like four. Yeah. Well, uh, it depends how you look at it. But yeah. In any case, we bash on BSD a fair amount. Sometimes we compliment it. But I'm OK with it. Like, I just can't imagine using that shit on my desktop every day. I mean, there are some people who do. There's an OpenBSD Facebook group, strangely enough, but I'm a member of that. And there's people installing it on their, like, just bought high-end laptops all the time. I think Linux might be a better choice for them, but yeah, whatever, you know? But I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm okay with it. FreeBSD is like, nah, I think it's super overrated. If I'm going to go with a BSD, I'm going to choose OpenBSD or NetBSD, for sure. NetBSD has a much greater hardware support and it's a lot closer to the original unixes unices what's the plural of unix unixes <laughs> it's not unix i <laughs> i don't know it's it absolutely is. not it's i i think it's unices with a c but it's a lot closer to that NetBSD is openbsd is still pretty close to it but they've got a lot of security tweaks in place i mean they have really put a lot of work into making their distribution really secure off the bat so kudos to them but 
uh, I mean, then you start getting into the weird ones, like Dragonfly BSD is not really my cup of tea. They wanted to basically bring BSD up to like a proper multiprocessor environment, which the traditional ones, NetBSD, OpenBSD, still have some slight issues with. But Dragonfly BSD is, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's all right, but let me put it this way. If you're trying to do clustered computing in BSD, I pity you. <laughs> well, first off, why? That sounds, doesn't sound like a fun time. Well, I, I mean, that's a good question. People are politically opposed to Linux and prefer BSD. So I guess that's one reason. Okay, but if you're managing a cluster or you're in charge of a cluster or establishing a cluster, are you really going to hold that bias or are your goals probably not in line with that? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, but I mean, there are some people that do some crazy stuff on BSD where I, I just kind of look at them and shake my head. I definitely think Linux is going to be the way to go. I might be a little bit biased, but I think Linux is going to be the way to go for like clustering and stuff. But that's because so much work has already been put into it for the Linux system and the Linux kernel and the GNU user land. Granted, you could run the GNU user land on BSD, whatever, shut up. So that's Dragonfly BSD. It, it's okay. It's not really all that popular, but there's plenty of people that use it. FreeBSD is probably the most popular BSD out these days. Definitely true. FreeBSD, I think, has the biggest user base. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. With a name like FreeBSD, you'd expect it to, to be very gung-ho about purely open-source BSD licensed stuff, right? Absolutely. Well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> yeah, you'd be wrong. That may have been why they started, but I guess they just got so popular that they lost track or lost sight of it. But they sometimes accept NDAs. Some of the HAL modules they use are closed source. Yep. And that's not true of all BSDs. Right, yeah. I'm talking strictly free BSD right now. It's just, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I feel like if any of the BSDs would get an NSA backdoor and not have it found, it would be FreeBSD. I'll put it like that. FreeBSD is the Ubuntu of BSDs. There, I said it. I mean, that's that's kind of what it is, though. Like, it, it's they are all about that user-friendly experience and make it easy to use and all this other crap. And I'm like, they're chopping out a major part of what it means to be a BSD. What it means to be a BSD is a modern-day Unix system. Not Linux. Linux is a Unix-like, but it's Linux is not Unix. Yeah, and BSD, admittedly, is closer to Unix. Oh, it's far closer, especially OpenBSD and NetBSD. NetBSD the most, like, that is BSD to me. BSD is a Unix clone. It is supposed to work. You can sit down in front of it and react with it and work with it as if you were sitting down in front of a, I don't know, a SysV box or like a deck box or something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And FreeBSD super deviates from that. And I just, I don't like that they, I, I think they besmirch the name of BSD. You know what? Stay with the next one. PCBSD is bullshit. Well, it's based on FreeBSD first and foremost. Yeah. And that's why I said I really think that we're talking about four things here because you're running the same thing, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's an even more friendly version of FreeBSD. Like Mint. So FreeBSD is to Ubuntu as PCBSD is to Mint. Or um, what's that other one everyone uses? Linux? No, yeah, the, the distro that everyone uses, that's not Mint. Um, is it based on Ubuntu? Yeah, I think so. Can't remember. Oh, Elementary OS, which is like two versions behind Ubuntu, by the way. Yeah, so it's like uh, Mint or Elementary OS. It aims for the shiny and the user experience, but it, it's really, it suffers from the same things FreeBSD does and more. So that's, that's a problem in my book. You know what, fuck it, I'm gonna mention, like, all the, all the variants I can find. 
And there are some other forks of BSD, but like they've got like maybe like six total users. So I'm focusing on the ones that actually have a fairly large user base. Juno S. Junos? Juno S? I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, I'm not really sure what that is. It's the operating system that Juniper Kit runs. So like Juniper routers and, and switches and all that. They run Junos. I'm going to call it Junos because I like the way it sounds. They're based on FreeBSD too. Because the BSD license is so wide open, you can use BSD code and not attribute for the most part. The GPL protects against this. The GPL has like protections in place where if you use this open source, you have to make your own stuff open source. The, the BSD license has no real equivalent of that. And they kind of call the GPL a cancer, like a virus. And I, I understand the perspective, but I think it's there to protect and, and make open source flourish, you know, rather than trying to control the, the options of the, the developer. I don't know. I see it as fair as fair. Many BSD users don't, but whatever. No, my favorite is OpenBSD. OpenBSD is so cool, dude. They're great for network stuff because they're just so hardened. They're so small. I mean, like, you can get a good good install for, like, less than one gig. I think, like, the, the default install is, like, 512 megabytes-ish. It's pretty small. It's very small. It's really, really great for, like, if you're making a home firewall. Mm-hmm. It's a great application. And it's cool because, one, you get a firewall out of it. Two, you get to mess with OpenBSD. So. Yeah. They've also done a lot of work with a lot of interesting side projects that are now ported over to not only other BSDs, but Linux and, and all that stuff. So OpenBSD is responsible either for the, the birth and or current maintainership of the following projects. OpenSSH, OpenNTPD, which is maybe got a little bit flack for the leap second thing recently because there was, there was a bug with that. But, you know, they're working on it. It's still a really cool project. OpenBGPD, which is a, a BGP router daemon, I believe. OpenSMTPD, which I have not used at all, so I, I'm not quite as familiar. PF, which is the, the firewall, packet firewall, I think it stands for. It's kind of like IP tables, but on steroids. This is why <laughs> OpenBSD is also great for networking equipment. You can do a lot of really cool stuff with PF. CARP, which I, I have no idea what it is. Let me actually check what that is right now, because it, it sounds... Is that their disk encryption thing? Oh, no, that's common address redundancy protocol. It must be a routing thing. Huh. Okay, yeah, so it's like an answer to Cisco's HSRP. Got it. Well, that's cool. And Libra SSL was, and I think still is, an OpenBSD project. So they've got, they've got some really cool stuff. They prefers BSD or ISC license. They will begrudgingly accept GPL code. Like, for GCC, they're not about to rewrite their own... I forget what their own compiler is called. They're not about to rewrite that to support GCC-isms. So they, they do support GCC. It's derived from NetBSD, and NetBSD in turn is derived from the original BSD, you know, the, the first Berkeley Systems daemon. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really cool, a really cool fork. I, I just don't understand when you, if you're going to use BSD, I don't understand why you wouldn't use NetBSD or OpenBSD. Well, I mean, they have different focuses. Well, yeah, OpenBSD. For, for a while, FreeBSD, I think, and maybe still, I don't know. I mean, I haven't even done reading about BSD anything in a long time. But for a while, it was pretty true as far as I'm concerned and as far as I know that FreeBSD did have better performance in a lot of areas. They do attract more programmers, so they tend to be more featureful. But I mean, in my book, like, it's not worth it. It's, it's just not worth it. Yeah, I don't know. I just, looking at, like, the philosophy of all the products... 
NetBSD is awesome. I mean, you can run NetBSD on like most embedded devices. You can run it on your fucking toaster if you want. And I joke, but there's someone who apparently ran NetBSD on their toaster. Oh my gosh. But anyway, NetBSD is great because it's super small. It runs on everything. OpenBSD is really cool because it's super secure and it offers this really powerful things you can do with your, your networking stack. And then there's just FreeBSD and you know, no matter how well it works, they just don't have they don't have the track record in terms of security that OpenBSD has, and it certainly doesn't work on as much hardware as NetBSD. Yeah. So I feel like it's just like meh. Yeah, I, I don't know. And then I'm not even bringing PC BSD or Dragonfly into this because or the yeah. smaller ones like GhostBSD or DesktopBSD or uh, yeah, whatever. That's... Oh, oh, there is Frisbee. Oh, it looks like it's discontinued. Frisbee was a BSD-based live CD. Like rescue live CD kind of a thing. I remember using that. That was it was cool. I guess it's dead. Oh well. But PFSense, which I which we mentioned, I think two episodes back, three episodes back. I don't know. I know I mentioned it at some point. That's that's free BSD based, I believe. Yeah, there's 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 a fair bit of of BSDs out there, but the ones we're talking about in detail are pretty much the only popular ones and the only ones regularly maintained. Right. Free BSD, like they claim to support performance, but I really don't. I don't get that. Oh, did you know that earlier versions of Windows, like, I think up to, at the very least, up to Windows XP, used BSD networking stack code? No. Yeah. That doesn't actually surprise me. Well, I mean, it's, it's BSD licensed, so, like, why write your own networking stack when you can just copy code from someone else? So, does that trace all the way back to, like, the original Berkeley software distribution? I mean, maybe, like, three lines, you know, like... Well, it's just an interesting thought, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I mean... I'm sure you could trace it back, but that's a that's kind of a loaded question because not a lot of the modern BSDs, even the ones forked like directly from the original BSD, they don't share a lot of the code base these days. You know what I mean? Right. Sure. Because there's there's been a lot of changes. That's it's like asking like how much does the Linux four one or what are we up to now four one three? How much does the Linux four one three kernel compare to Linux one Sure. Do you think that there's ever going to be something that, like, replaces Linux? Like, Linux and BSD. Like, we're just going to see them not used anymore. Like, a new kernel or a new operating system. You know, I, I can't tell. I mean, if you think about it, like, what we commonly consider a computer has only been around... A really computing system has only been around since, like, the 60s, 70s. The concept we know of, like, a proper operating system has only really been around since late 70s desktops have only been around since let's say mid to late 80s laptops even less you know so like computers are still a very new thing in terms of humanity and society the internet even more so so i mean i i hesitate to make it a judgment call like that but i don't see linux or bse going away anytime soon if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, you can't know, so it's just a question. Yeah, and there are there are alternative stuff out there. There's, what is it, uh, I think it's like Pony Unix or something. Some guy basically wrote a joke operating system, but it's fully functional. It's a Unix, uh, it's an open source Unix system based around My Little Pony. <laughs> oh, shit. There's also uh, just recently, I think we might have mentioned it in passing. I think you found it for in one of the episodes, but it's like an embedded OS written entirely in assembly. Yeah, yeah, it that yeah. There's people doing some crazy stuff out there that's not Linux or Unix or BSD or whatever, and 
there's some really cool ideas. So, I mean, maybe we'll see some some changes, some differences, but uh, not for a while. Oh, I should remind me. Actually, this is a reminder for myself, I guess, to link to, uh, I think it's Arc OS, something like that. Some some schizophrenic wrote it, and it's it's crazy. It's it's kind of cool, but it's it's you can tell schizophrenic wrote it. So really, it's a little trippy, but I don't know. I'll I'll mention it. And tying into BSD, we mentioned PFSense. Similar to PFSense is FreeNAS. FreeNAS lets you do some pretty cool stuff. It is. As its name would imply, a system to set up a NAS that you can, like, shell into so it's not, like, a, a dumb NAS or something, like those stupid proprietary ones with the embedded firmware bullshit that you buy at, like, I don't know, Walmart or whatever. So you can build, like, a fully functional NAS with embedded firmware, and it's widely used. It's got some great support behind it. It's got, like, a web interface and all that stuff. It's open source. I've used it before. It's cool. I mean, it supports what you would expect a NAS to do, like iSCSI and raid and stuff like that it's just i don't know it's not linux and i miss linux when i have to use bsd i'll use it but i prefer something linux based if you were going to go to the trouble of using free nas why not just set up zfs and do it yourself well well that's first off that's the thing like it's it's a it's it's like a button in free nas so if you're not into the tinkering thing you just want to quick turn up a nas i get it you know free nas is going to be your jam 100 sure no, fuck that. Do it yourself. No, dude. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell someone who's not confident enough to do that. You know. By all means, if you want to learn, learn. But like, don't make yourself feel overwhelmed. Okay. Well, all right. Well, what about like you wanted to make a media server for your house? Yeah. Would you Would you consider free NAS? Mm, it depends. Are Are other people going to be using that? Like adding content to it and stuff. Yes. Then yeah, I would. I would probably consider free NAS. No shit. But wouldn't you want to just roll it yourself? I mean, if you were to roll that kind of thing by yourself, like a home media server for everyone that you could stream from your TV, whatever, what would you base it on? Well, and that's... that's You'd probably use fucking Archie. Well, I, I, I mean, I probably would, just because I like how updated the packages are and this wide selection of packages, and I do like SystemD. But what I'm getting at is there's a project called OwnCloud. They are not a distro. Nope, OwnCloud is a Linux program. Yeah, it's a stand... Well, I would call it a software suite. Sure. But yeah, it's, it's standalone, so it can run on any distro. You might have to finagle more with some than others. I'm pretty sure the back end actually only runs on Linux, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think it's... I mean, you might... It might run on BSD. Well, you know, port. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Even FreeBSD, like, supports, like, Linux code kind of native in the kernel, so... I guess I guess FreeBSD's got that going for them. They they've got cross compatibility, but I haven't really given OwnCloud the the demo that I want to give it. You know, I haven't run it through hoops and actual usage, but I've used it a little bit and I I do like it a lot. I don't think it's as newbie friendly as FreeNAS is. Yeah, the back end's definitely a little bit more complicated, but it's sort of like you could establish your own Dropbox instance. I mean, that's something that's sort of yeah. terrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it supports like SCP, FTP, Samba, NFS, a bunch of other obscure ones, that Apple proprietary one, you know, like it, it sort of supports a bunch of networking stacks for file sharing, but... We actually have an own cloud server at BioFrontiers, I think. Yeah, I think you mentioned that. What do you mean you think? Well, if we do have it, it's something that I've never touched or maintained at all, so I have no idea. Oh, well, yeah. 
I mean, it, it is pretty cool in its own right, and it looks like it's gaining popularity and, and steam, which I'm all about. But, I mean, if, you, if you're if you looking for something a little bit more featureful out of the box, FreeNAS is going to be the way to go. I mean, that's that's my, my take yeah, on it. Yeah, that's fair. I haven't used FreeNAS, but I've played around with it a little bit. Um, I just don't have a use for any kind of service like that, so... Yeah, I, I can understand that. Not everybody needs a fucking NAS in their home. Yeah, exactly. Jathan sent me a message in IRC. What is Mojahedin <laughs> Secrets 2? Uh, apparently it's some, like, encryption that um, Al-Qaeda uses. Oh, yeah! Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing it, yeah. And it's it's something that came about because of Snowden leaks, I think. Yeah. That's yeah, why I, I mean, thought of it when you were talking before. They predicted the leaks were going to cause something like this. But, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it. We'll read about it. We'll talk about it in a later episode. I think it's about time to call this one quits. Yeah, I think so. Cool. All right. This has been Sysadministrivia. This is Brent. I'm Jonathan. See you around. <laughs>